When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, point of sale probably isn't at the top of your list. It's the transactional finality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the first mobile, flexible, customizable point of service system built for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on-premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity, your managers will love the world-class support team, and your guests will love that they can get the same delicious beer with the same amazing service from anywhere. Fall in love with your point of sale. Fall in love with Arrived. This is Andy Crouch, and welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. I first met Joey Redner a little over a decade ago on the first day that his new brewery, Cigar City Brewing, held its first tap event. In 2009, when Cigar City got its start, the beer scene in Florida was a shell of its current self. There were a couple dozen small brew pubs largely scattered in tourist areas around the state, and the quality of the beer was, well, enough to drive you to buy Michelob Amberbach and Yingling, and as I often did. In the midst of all this middling amber and brown ales served in local brew pubs, one local beer geek dreamed of something more. At the time, Joey Redner was writing a beer column for a local newspaper in Tampa. He had a passion for beer, but his options were pretty limited on the Gulf side of Florida. But as you will hear, with his support and encouragement of his father, Joe Redner, Joey took the blind leap into open a small brewery in a state that didn't seem to care about flavorful beer. The timing couldn't have been better. Craft beer was continuing its march across the country. And with so many craft beer-loving northerners visiting Florida in the winter months, there seemed like a natural base to build on until the locals came around. Despite some initial reluctance, those locals did see the light. After opening, Joey had to send beer to New York and Philly to make sales. But pretty quickly, Cigar City retrenched in St. Pete and Tampa and started to go deep in the local scene. And Joey discovered a knack for capturing the attention passion, and ultimately the dollars of craft beer geeks. The annual Hunapu's Day became a must-attend event for beer geeks and helped influence the modern-day ticker and trader movements. In 2016, Redner faced a crossroads in determining how to manage the fast-growing brewery's future. His decision shocked many in the beer industry. He would sell the brewery to Oscar Blues Brewery and Fireman's Capital. In this interview, Joey goes into great detail about the events leading up to the sale, including his unrequited flirtations with Anheuser-Busch, and what ultimately convinced him to sell. This interview was recorded about a year ago, long before the pandemic, and it was meant to be part of a very different podcast series, one where we at Beer Edge explored the concept of pioneers in the beer space. COVID sidetracked us a bit along the way, but we're finally coming back around to some of our recorded interviews. Joey Redner certainly qualifies as a pioneer in several ways, including as the godfather of craft beer in Florida, now one of the nation's most engaging beer scenes. To tell this story, we're spreading it out over two episodes. In this first episode, we start with the early days of Cigar City and work our way up to just before the sale. In the next episode, we'll talk in detail about the sale, how the brewery moved forward, and what the future holds for both Joey and Cigar City. Welcome back to the Beer Edge Podcast. 
it's been a while since you and I have seen each other. Yeah, I don't know exactly how long, but I know I know it has been. A, it's been a couple of years at least. Yeah, yeah. and I've you, know, you and I have known each other actually for quite some time. Uh, I actually was coming up here. I've been you know my folks, as you know, have lived down in uh, in Sarasota, so I've tried to make time to come up here and explore the Tampa beer scene, and have for you know many many years uh, back to when it was just Tampa Bay Brewing Company, and things have kind of progressed a lot since then. Yeah, uh, if you're if you're coming to visit us in the early days, it was definitely a same exact building, a much different setup. We were we were in probably ten percent of the building. We've grown to take over the whole thing. Uh, the tasting room has gone through a couple of iterations. We're actually in the brewery, and we got a fancy air conditioned uh, <laughs> former office next door. And uh, I thought that was pretty amazing when we, when we upgraded to that. And then we ended up taking up I don't know the rest of the office space that was there. And uh, obviously, uh, this is a podcast, so you can't see anything now, but we're going through a pretty big expansion. Um, we're finally going to add a restaurant on site, which we'd never had. Um, and just really, this is all in the original uh, brewing area, uh, which we called Brewhouse One. Um, so it's uh, there's been a lot of changes. I think the first time we met was actually, it might have been, maybe I'm wrong, the, orig- the first tap event you guys ever did it was at the oldsmar tap house oh yeah gosh yeah that was um that was really early days uh we were still you know our tasting room such as it was was really just a little roped off space in uh in the brewery uh literally across from the from the uh brew platform um gosh that was really early days and i think at that event um you were pouring some interesting beers and obviously you had there had been a lot of buzz but at the time, you know, I brought my dad with me uh, on the trip, and your dad was there, and your family was there, and so they got to talking. Um, and then about a year later, uh, I came back, and I interviewed you for another magazine that I wrote for, and we sat in, you know, sort of a newer part of a tasting room or one that was in planning. And I know that my dad, you know, while we were interviewing, you know, it was two dads just sort of bonding over their sons and their professional activities. Um, and your dad was just sort of beaming and, and sort of looked at the building and, and told my dad, you know, one day he's going to he's going to have all of this. He's going to be using <laughs> all of this. What were your, you know, would you did you envision that that was going to be the case? Uh, he's pretty prescient because <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, it's a question that you get a lot. I think if you, you know, if you, you do anything that has any kind of success or growth, um, I always, you know, my, my answer is really you know it comes from a truthful place is you know you never know it's like you knew a range of possibilities uh, um I, I was able to look out into the rest of the world and saw what breweries you know did and didn't do uh and i knew that you know it could be viable and small and stay that way and still be a, a you know a successful thing at least as far as for what i set out to do but i also knew that there were certainly breweries out there that had you know been on that rocket ship growth and i sort of knew it could fall anywhere from about like this to way more than this. Um, and I didn't personally have a lot of expectations. Um, you know, I always kind of, my motivation for the brewery, of course, I wanted it to be successful financially and do well. But I, the, you know, the back of my mind reason for why I got off my butt and did it was really just to have be part of a of making a better beer scene in my area, which really had an un, extremely underserved beer scene. Um, you know, there's really that just like beer geek part of me that like, 
you know, like felt shame if I ever did like a beer trade with, uh, you know, another beer geek in another city. And I had so little to offer from, from where I was coming from. Um, that was part of the motivation for me. So, um, you know, the business side of it, you know, obviously I wasn't naive. I knew I had to, uh, you know, do things well and have a successful business and bring in more money than I put out. Um, but, but when your motivation, some of it really does come from like a, a fan kind of place. You're more flexible about where it goes, you know? And what was the state of the Tampa or even the Florida beer scene at that point? As you know, I've been coming down to Florida for a long time, visiting family, and I would come down as a beer geek and be excited if you could find Amberbach on tap at that point, or maybe even Yingling. And, you know, back in the older days, you know, Ybor City Gold and their Brown, which were great to have. But otherwise, you're right. It was just, it seemed pretty, pretty quiet. Yeah, it was, it, it was bad. I mean, I, I guess you, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to frame it in hopeful terms, you could say it was nascent. <laughs> it was young. Um, I, 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 before I opened my brewery, I worked for Dunedin Brewery, uh, doing sales and they were really the only brewery in Florida, uh, that, you know, had a brewery on site that was doing some package that would leave the brewery and they were doing it relatively large format. You know, they, there was no, six packs that they would do like 16 ounce bottles. That was pretty much it. And some draft. Um, there was another brewery down in Miami, but they didn't have a brewery on site. They just contracted um, some beer. And then they really were only supposed to be selling it on premise. Nothing was supposed to leave, but you know, a growler might get out here and there. Um, and that was really it. I mean, when I opened Cigar City Brewing, I think there was maybe 30, 35 breweries in the entire, you know, almost 20 million population state of Florida and almost every one of them was a brew pub. So, you know, the experience of, you know, whatever was happening there beer wise, it stayed in those four walls. You weren't taking things out um, because in those days, brew pubs could not give you a growler and send you any beer to go. You, you had to consume the beer there. Um, so, you know, the experience kind of lived and died in those four walls. Um, I think I used to keep track of this, so I'm not sure if this is 100% accurate, but uh, last I checked, the Tampa Bay area has almost double the amount of breweries that the entire state did when, when I started Cigar City Brewing. I mean, the, the growth here is incredible, and you see it just up and down the coast in the, you know, in the, from the panhandle all the way down to Miami. It's just a, it's, it went from being kind of bud country, you know, and obviously it still has quite a bit of dominance there to, to being something a lot more active, a lot more interesting. Yeah, you know, I think there was a, uh, definitely a lot of pent up demand. Um, it, Florida certainly, you know, it, it got started a little later, but it, it definitely followed the arc of what you saw in other states. Um, but I think here you might even have had more pent up demand because here, just you know, the demographic skews uh, very differently than in most states. Most states, you know. The people that live there are the people that live there here. A lot of the people that live here are not the people that grew up here. They, they came from other places and they're bringing those traditions with them. Um, you know, so if, if they were maybe moving here from a place that didn't have much of a crap beer scene, then, then they probably had no issues. But you get a lot of people moving from states, um, you know, Pennsylvania being a big one, uh, New Jersey being right next to Pennsylvania where there was a craft beer tradition. Um, and, and they wanted it, you know, it was part of, it was part of, um, what they had before they came here. And so when you start looking at those demographics, there was a lot of pent up demand. They were ready for, for other, you know, beer style offerings. Um, and, you know, 
and honestly, those were the people that kind of, I think, very early latched on to us even more so than a lot of the native Floridians, which I am. Um, but I think that helped like a state like Florida, whereas there's other large states um, or pockets uh, where maybe it didn't happen as quickly. Um, that, that definitely was a, a, a needle mover, I think, for Florida was having so many uh, transplants that had come from states where they had better beer offerings or not better. I, I always struggle with that word. They had more craft beer offerings. And what was your vision for Cigar City at the time? What were you what were you hoping you know, to yeah. do? Because you, your background had been, like you said, you'd been a Dunedin. You had written, you know, you, you were a col- beer columnist and a beer geek at heart. What were you hoping to, in in that time in Florida, achieve with Cigar City? Yeah, you know, I, there really was like the just the, the really non-financial uh, motivation side. It really was to just kind of like make Florida not be such a redheaded stepchild beer state. Um, you know, I figured, you know, uh, uh, Bob Silvestro had just opened St. Somewhere just ahead of where I did. And then I was opening and I was going to package some beer. Like, you know, if a couple of us could like make some okay beers and get them out in the world, like we'd look better. Um, and I know that's like a really dumb reason, but like if on rape beer, there was like four or five more breweries in the state that packaged, like that would be cool. Um, you know, I knew that 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 there were a lot more people like me that would support something small and local. And because, you know, when you're a new business in a in an unproven industry in a in an unproven region for that industry, you gotta have almost like patron level supporters. And I knew they were out there because I was one. I if there was a brewery that was gonna open, um, I was gonna buy a ton of that product and give it to everyone I knew to try to you know get it off the ground and make sure that it could you know, fly out of the nest on its own. Um, so I knew that those, I knew that there were people out there that would support it, you know, at the, at the just like above and beyond level, but you still got to get to the, get to the next steps. You've got to have people that just casually will buy the product. And that's kind of what I hoped for Cigar City was that, um, it would kind of become just like, uh, oh, that's, you know, that's a local brewery for, you know, it's Tampa local brewery and, you know, we'd be on, um, places, you know, that just wanted to carry, you know, beer. Maybe that was from that area that not necessarily were beer geeks trying to be patrons. They just were like, Oh, that's a local beer. Let's carry it. That was my, that was my pie in the sky hope. <laughs> and where did your beer, your love of beer and your interest in beer come from? You know, I, I don't know. I guess I just, uh, there's certain flavors I like that, that, uh, the brewers that make a lot of beer, uh, you know, or traditionally made a lot of beer in the U.S., just didn't go in, you know, into those styles because there wasn't enough uh, demand for it. I've just always loved uh, darker beers, brown ales, porters, uh, malty beers, uh, and then getting into pale ales. I was never a super hop head. I kind of had to grow into that, and I'm still probably going to drink way less IPA than I would porter or brown ale. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's genetic. I'm, <laughs> I'm primarily English, Irish, Scottish. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, there's a little bit of Spanish in there. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but I do know that, you know, when I, you know, prior to turn 21, you know, at a field party and you know, someone hands you a beer and you drink the beer, you're like, eh, I, you know, okay, if this is what everyone else is doing, I'll have one too. But I didn't like the beer that I could get that was right in front of my face. And very early on, I gravitated to, you know, German imports, Dunkles, th- things that had just a little bit different flavor. 
Um, and you know, when you can't get what you want, it kind of locks you into a mindset of being more experimental. You'll try different things because you're not, you know, if I was happy with the first sip I took, uh, and, and that was all I ever aspired to have, then I would probably just stay in that lane and never try anything. But because I didn't like the beer I could easily get my hands on, I was always willing to try something new. Um, and then you start finding a couple of things that you do like, but they're hard, they're hard to get. They're not consistent. You go out to a bar with your buddies. They're not going to have the beers you like on. So you just, you know, you always got your eyes open for something else. And did you have, you have hope or really any, any intuition or belief that the local Florida market, or let alone the Tampa market was going to be interested in, in, in trying the beers that you were talking about, that you were passionate about? I, you know, again, I didn't think, I never thought that it would get as ma- as the mainstream acceptance that it did. I really never thought that Cigar City beers would be in Publix just as a default thing. I never thought that if I went to Indy Random Bar, there'd be a highlight IPA on draft. Um, that, you know, that was part of the wave of craft beer that went way beyond what I ever thought. I thought we could get a few placements. We could, you know, like if the kind of account that like maybe they would carry Sam Adams if they were feeling frisky, they might throw on a highlight occasionally. I just never thought that some of the beers that we make would ever become default because I per, I, I just thought, well, we'll never be in places like that. So since we'll never be in places like that, let's make our IPA really aggressive. I mean, wh- you know, what's the cutoff? Seven, seven, five? Well, let's put it at seven, five, you know, uh, our brown ale. Uh, hell, let's make it a brown porter that kind of goes back a step into brown ale territory, but make everything a little bit, a little bit more full bodied and f- more full flavored because we're never going to, if we try to make it approachable, we're never getting in the door anyway. So let's make it big and bold. So for the people that really like that, um, it's every, it's every bit of, of, of the extreme experience of, of that side of the style. Um, and you, the pendulum definitely swung to where people were willing to experiment and try things and, and the growth of the style uh, especially IPA, I just, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that coming, not to the degree that it has and the staying power that it has. I mean, I still marvel over the fact that people just flat buy a six pack of IPA and drink it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, it would be a challenge for me to sit down and drink six highlights. And when you guys were getting started, you, one of the things that you became known for was just sort of, you know, and maybe it's because there were, were not a lot of other people around to talk to. You were blogging about it, and this is days before social media, really days before you know Facebook was a huge thing. You were just putting things out there and sort of you know, and that may be the writer and you and screaming into the void. But you were kind of building a brand for maybe six months or a year or longer as you guys dealt with you know recipe development, trying to figure that out and brand identity, and then starting to you know, even bitch about local regulators or you know, or contractors or something along the along the way how important was that and and so what was your interest in in sort of getting that voice out there i think you know part of it was definitely sort of my you know the writer beer geek side of it i'm like you know document it you're doing some unique things and some of it was not having a blueprint um you know there just wasn't a lot of other breweries i worked at dunedin i could talk to them but the production side of things you know had was pretty much set in stone. It was, it was coasting. Like I wasn't around for how they set the brewery up. I could ask questions, but there was just a lot I didn't know because we were in an industry in Tampa that was just, you know, it was virtually non-existent. You know, there was, 
a couple of breweries had got set up, but they'd all got set up years before I was trying to open mine. So I just didn't have a lot of resources. And I figured some of this stuff I'm going to do and mess up will be of interest to other people who may want to do it. And remember, I wanted other people to do it. You know, I wanted there to be other breweries. I wanted there to be, uh, you know, a, a beer scene that the beer geek side of me could be proud of. Uh, you know, also I certainly wanted to have to do it right, but I didn't have a lot of resources. So I just figured, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it. And I knew that it certainly couldn't hurt, um, for other people that were interested in doing it, but were like me just before I actually pulled the trigger and did it, that it would drum up interest, you know, like, Oh, this guy's opening a brewery and <laughs> Oh my God, look what he did. <laughs> what an idiot. I'm not going to do that. Mis- I'm not going to make that mistake. Um, so, you know, I, it seemed completely natural. It never even occurred to me that you wouldn't do it or that, it, or that like, Oh, it may make you look bad. Like you didn't know what you were doing. I thought it was pretty manifest that I didn't know what I was doing and I was figuring it out anyway. We talked a little bit about your dad and sort of his his predictions for the future. Does entrepreneurship run in your family? Is that is that where you got some influence? Yeah, I mean, you know, my dad has been a serial entrepreneur. He's always, uh, you know, he's always been, you know, either whether it's him launching something or someone else does it, and he comes in and and uh, will buy in, invest, but then be an active uh, guider of it. Uh, I guess because I, I find myself, I've always kind of gravitated that way. Um, rather, you know, I, I tried to, I tried to work other people. It's definitely not, it's, it's definitely not my best skill set. I can cert, I can do it, uh, for a while, but yeah, I am always thinking about like, I think it, for me, it's more like, well, you know, what else isn't there? <laughs> you know, I get, I guess dissatisfaction and being an entrepreneur maybe go hand in hand because I am always looking for, I mean, I can't drive in my neighborhood without thinking, well, what do we need? <laughs> what isn't here that we would fit in perfectly? Uh, and it maybe where that's where it comes from me. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing to say, uh, but it, it, it's certainly in the family. I can't, I can't deny that. And he's he was an active investor in you early on. Was that your thought? Was that I would I'd like to partner with my dad on yeah. this project as opposed to trying to go out? No, I w- honestly I wasn't. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where I just thought he would thought it was a ridiculous idea, and everyone around him thought it was a ridiculous idea. Um, and I was doing it anyway. It just I was going to start even smaller. And he, you know, he came to me and he said, "Man, I can see this. You're like really doing this." Um, you know, I'm willing to loan you the money. Um, and he really did not force him his way in. He, he offered to leave it as a flat loan. You could pay it back. Um, and you know, it's, as it started having success, I could have easily paid him back, but you know, I, I was so, uh, he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have invested money with me because there was no track record that this was going to work. And so I wanted to reward him and say, look, I'll convert it to equity. Uh, as opposed to just alone, because you had faith in me and like literally no one else did. Um, and, you know, certainly he's my dad. So that had to be a big reason why he did it. But it was not an insignificant amount of money. And I know a lot of people were in his ear telling him that, you know, no one's going to buy beer out of some garage. Like, what are you doing? You're wasting your money. Um, so I, you know, I, I was to this day, I'm still like, I don't know why he did it. Um, it's not like, you know, I had this proven track record of entrepreneurial success. Um, and so for me, it was, you know, it was very easy to say, you know, good on you, man. Cause you, 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 you saw something, 
uh, when no one else did, when I wasn't even sure I'd seen it yet. So, um, so yeah, he, he, he didn't, he definitely did not like, he, he, he didn't make it a situation where, oh yeah, let's do this together. He, he was letting me choose. You want me in? I'm in. You, you just want to make it alone and pay me back. I'm going my merry way. Um, so, you know, that level of confidence in me, it may be, I could never not consider having him in. And then when do you think in the process, did he really see the, see that this was working? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, when beer trucks started showing up and we're starting to like wheel pallets of beer on, like he realizes, oh, there's a market out there that's bigger than I, maybe I can see, but he, you know, I don't know if he was hiding it, but he seemed to have extreme confidence in it. Um, even through like the, you know, the gritty stages where nothing's really happened. You're just spending money, you know, digging holes in ground and, you know, running electrical wires, but nothing's happening. There's no customers coming by. Um, he seemed to like, you know, think, Hey, this, things are going great. Um, but yeah, I think when the, you know, when the trucks of another big local company that you've heard of before, distributor starts popping in and then oh oh by the way they're coming again at the end of the week too you start to see like okay there's really a marketplace out there i just i may not see it i don't know what it looks like but it clearly exists because those guys aren't going to waste their time sending trucks over unless they can make a dime off of it and i think that's when he and and really got so you have to understand i started cigar city brewing sort of in this empty little bay at the end of a building that he owned you know, where he runs all his other businesses that are successful. So there's a lot of people watching that work for him going, what are these idiots doing down there? Uh, and then, you know, at the end of the process, these trucks start rolling in and they're picking up product. And pretty soon there's a way, a way more business activity happening at that little, you know, corner of the business than, than everything else combined. And pretty soon, you know, it starts to outstrip all of that stuff combined. Um, he never seemed to have any doubts that that could happen. Everyone else was, you know, look at these knuckleheads. Arrived all the way. It's a system built by people who worked in the industry and they regularly check in with their clients for not only support, but ways they can potentially grow or help you pivot and readjust as needed. I've worked with all the major systems out there and I would never pick another service, says Katie Neerling, the GM of Scott Brewstillery, about Arrived. And so, did you have a background background as a home brewer? Was that something you were interested in? And how did uh, you end up getting you know, deciding not to be the one to work you know to work the system here? Yeah, so I, I home brewed. You know, when you get into something, you you know, I, I followed it. I followed every path. You know, I was a big beer trader. Um, you know, I read a lot of books. I wrote about beer, and and yeah, I home brewed too. Um, and I could I could make a beer that I would drink, but. I didn't love the refinement process uh, process of it as much as like your real like award winning home brewers do, where they're just always trying to get you know more perfect and dialed in. Plus, uh, I knew enough and hung out with enough home brewers and and real brewers to realize that it's just a very different. You know, home brewing is not professional brewing. It's just they're just very different things. They it's the same process, but. The, the the consistency the the scale you know it, it, it's not the same thing it's like oh you're a really good cook at home okay well now 
cooked for 350 people at once and played them all at the same time. Like, it's just a different thing. So that I just knew, I, I always knew that I couldn't be the brewer. I didn't have the skill set and experience. And to, to be the brewer, I would have to leave the state. You know, I'd have to either go get formal training or I'd have to go get on in a brewery and, and work for a year or two. So now I can't open my brewery for a year or two because I've got to learn the skills that are going to be required to do it right. So I knew pretty early in the process that I could just be an initiated brewery owner and not the actual head brewer. And how did you come to, you know, meet up with your present, you know, the, the, you know, the individual who become the head brewer, Wayne? Um, you know, I interviewed a bunch of people and there were people that I thought could do it and, and it would be okay. Um, but it never really, it, it was never like 100%. Oh yeah. Uh, and I interviewed someone that I was interested in and, and, and in the feeling out process, she just was like, there's no way I'll work for that much money. Uh, you know, I've been in it too long. I'm not doing that. And I'm like, no, I get it. But she recommended, uh, Wayne to me, who was working at Foothills uh, in North Carolina, and Wayne had been a head brewer prior, um, but you know the industry in the Southeast was you know not super strong, and so to stay in the industry, he had to take a job, basically being an assistant brewer, and he was eager to go back and be a recipe writer again, uh, and actually get to you know do what he wanted to do and not make someone else's just make someone else's recipes. And we're about the same age. We had some of the, you know, same musical interests. And um, while we come from very different backgrounds and he, you know, he he saw a lot about the world different than me. We had the right amount of overlap that it worked. And he he, he didn't think I was fat, flat on my face crazy for some of the things I pitched. And that was a big part of it. Um, I, you know, I had some wild ideas and he was like, well, yeah, you could probably do it. You'd have to do this and that. Um, and so that just all fell into place. And I just, I knew we stopped talking about, but we talked for about an hour or so on the phone. We stopped talking about beer pretty early and started talking about other things. And I just knew it was going to work. And then in the early days, how did you go about doing the development of recipes and just sort of the vision for what you thought the, you know, what you thought the beer should be and what they should taste like? Yeah, I, I would give overarching themes to Wayne. Unfortunately, Wayne wasn't just a brewer that brewed beer. He had had a lot of commercial beers. He got into brewing. Um, there was a hurricane in Alabama, power got cut off, uh, but he had a friend that was subscribing to this beer of the month club. So he'd had beers of different styles from different commercial makers. Uh, and a lot of brewers counterintuitively haven't had a lot of, a lot of commercial beers. Like they've had a few, but then they kind of get in their place, they brew their beer and they sort of know styles based on you know, recipe books and maybe not necessarily commercial examples. So they're like, Oh, I know how to make a stout, but I may not have had 10 different stouts from 10 different makers. Um, Wayne had had the experience of that. We could communicate like, well, I'd want it to be a little like too hearted, but with like elements of X, I could give him commercial examples and he knew what I was talking about. Uh, so that's how a lot of it came about to be. I was like, well, let's split the difference between this and that commercial example. Um, let's make this a little more like that. And he, we could have that conversation, and and there, there there was no gaps in his understanding of what I was saying. Um, fortunately, you know, I could also get him the commercial example. But if you didn't have some touchstones for that, you know, you'd you'd be ordering beer, you know, for a month before any beer was actually getting uh, written. Um, so uh, that was a big part of it. Uh, he also had a lot of his own ideas that that I thought were great. Um, so 
I could imagine, I think on my end too, if he explained something to me, I could imagine what it would taste like and what he was talking about. Um, and fortunately he had his homebrew kit still. So it was very quick and easy for us to pilot things. In fact, I suspect that at that Oldsmar Tap House launch, that was the first out of, you know, out of the walls here event we'd ever done. I wouldn't be surprised if a third or more of the beer was actually brewed on his homebrew kit because we were just getting fired up on the on the main brewery here. And so, how does how does a product or how does a an event in a series like Hunapu develop? Where was the, where did the idea for in the genesis of that? Come so, from? so the beer that would become Hunapu, Wayne had that idea in in his pocket before I ever hired him. He actually pitched that was one of the beers we talked about, I believe, on the phone the first time. He pitched i think he pitched that idea for what hunapu would become to the brewery he was working at and they thought it was crazy and, and weren't interested and i thought it was amazing <laughs> um i i think he he told me that idea and i was like oh my god that would be so good like we have to do that so i think that got piloted pretty early um it, it might have been like maduro highlight hunapu i'm not sure but it was one of the one of the wayne would remember he's he's got a great memory for that stuff but it was an early early idea that early early got test brood and And he had that idea before he ever came here that was just something that was in his head and then how does the how does the event and the whole day and in all the pomp and circumstance around it develop it it, kind of just grew naturally like we piloted it i I don't remember where it went first i want to say maybe the atlantic cascal fest the first pilot where we sent it to that uh, and I, I think I won, uh, I don't know if it was a category overall. I don't remember. Uh, we weren't, our doors weren't open yet. Uh, but I think people up there had it. Um, and then, you know, people here had tried it. Like if they just come by the brewery and let them try it. And so it just, you know, if it had been another beer that people, you know, started to show a ton of interest in, and then we, we were said, Hey, we're going to make some of this. Um, then, then it would have been that beer that maybe we said, okay, well, we'll do a little thing around it. But Hunapu was the one that people glommed onto. And when we first made it, you know, the first Hunapu day was, uh, you know, it was maybe a couple hundred people all day. And we, you could still buy the beer a week later. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't what it became. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't, I, you know, I, I, if there was a way that, that, you know, you could create that by just creating it, um, you know, it would probably happen a lot more often, but it just grew. It became, it was enough, it was enough of a beer that was interesting. Um, you know, it, it, there was, there was a tradition of a big Imperial start releases. So, you know, maybe when we made ours, everyone said, okay, well that can be that. Um, and it, it just happened. If no, but if no one would have gave a shit, then it wouldn't have happened. So, um, you know, enough people cared to go, okay, I want that because, and you know, those big, release beers it tends to become because you know a it helps that you can lay them down you don't have to drink them right away uh but those are sharing beers and those are the beers that people go oh that's really interesting i want to get that i'm going to share it with my group of friends who are into that um you know there those those boxes have to be checkable i think for for a beer to to kind of get that treatment um it, it, it definitely has to, I think it has to be the kind of beer too that it's it's kind of a bitch to make that beer, especially to make a lot of it. Um, when you talk about, you know, all the adjuncts that are going into that beer, um, you know, the chili peppers, the vanilla, uh, cinnamon, like just that's not, you're putting so much vegetable mass into a fermenter that you're just, you don't want to make a lot of that beer. It's great that, that there's a big following to it, but that's just not a beer you want to 
mess with year round. Um, so I think that kind of helps too. It gives it, you know, it gives it that, Hey, let's just do this once or twice a year. Not anymore. Cause, cause the tank that we make that in, we could have flipped highlight seven times. So, you know, I think all of that sort of plays into making it, you know, kind of an event type release. Does it eventually become sort of a burden to deal with a brand like that or to deal with the, the whole situation? Because obviously there were some troubles over the years and obviously some growing pains and dealing with how that event sort of morphed. Um, you know, how at some point where you're just like, you know, just screw this. I'm done with this. Yes. <laughs> yes. At some point I was like, screw this. I was done this. But, you know, the burden wasn't the beer wasn't really the burden. Um, you know, it's more difficult to make a lot of a beer like that than other ones. But that wasn't the part you know, that was the hassle. The part that, that was the hassle was us learning how to smoothly execute a side of the business that we don't practice. You know, we don't practice having thousands of people showing up every day and giving them good service and having them, you know, f- have a good time. Um, that's not, at, you know, it's not in any of the key cores of what we do. So it's like you're doing this one day event in a year, but you have no practice for it until the day that it happens. Um, and that, you know, sometimes we did it good and sometimes we did it bad. Now, um, it, it, it's very easy for us to execute because we got freaking eight of them in, you know, behind our belt. We know what goes wrong. We know what goes right. And, you know, we, we have, you know, one person that's pretty much all they do is Hunapu Day. They work all year securing the event, securing the vendors figuring out how everything's going to flow. Uh, but, you know, in the beginning days, first two, three times we did it, um, you know, if if a lot of people don't come, we, we can do a pretty good job. <laughs> but when a lot of people come, uh, it becomes much more of a challenge. And and I think that was where it became a burden, not not the beer uh, and not even the, the one-day event of it. It's just the raw number of people, the popularity um, of beer events and people wanting to go to them was, you know, because – you know, I'd been to beer releases and none of them were like what, what are started to become like, uh, uh, well, that, that I had been to, there were certainly other ones where tons of people went, but that I had been to, because, you know, I was going to beer releases in 2004. There just wasn't that many people interested, but 10 years later, you know, it, it grew and, 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 you know, we're a business that does a certain thing that tries to go do something that you need to execute at a very high level for it to be fun for anyone. And we had no practice doing it and we couldn't even really hire someone to do it because it's sort of this ephemeral thing of like, you know, well, it's, you know, you go to a, go to a catering or planning or an event company and tell them, Oh, I'm doing a beer fest. They don't really know what you mean. They think, they think, you know, people are going to be wearing pretzel necklaces and, you know, holding German beer steins. They don't really understand what you mean. Um, so yeah, that was a challenge. And sort of, what was your reaction when you first started seeing it morph, and you you're starting to see people parking in the local Home Depot parking lot, and and lines going around the block, and starting to realize, oh, this is this is not what we initially had. And so, what is your reaction to sort of that whole culture of rarity that kind of built up? Because you were one of the earlier ones to to do this. I mean, there's obviously three Floyds and and others who were doing events around that same time, but this was one of the one of the early ones. Yeah, you know, it's like you're proud. It's cool that a lot of people want it, but you know, I personally just always had a very mentality. I, I don't, I hesitate to say like, um, you know, a sense of of like, 
entitlement because I don't think it's pervasive, but I think there was just some, I think it started, we looked at it as a commodity and there was a, there was an element of people that kind of were getting into that rarity side of, of the culture that never had any struggle. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I mean, I had gone to beer releases personally, me, myself, and didn't get me because it sold out. And I just always looked at that as part of the fun of it is like, oh, well, maybe next year or maybe I can trade someone and get some or maybe I'll be at a beer tasting and get to try some. Uh, I never thought of it as like, well, God damn it, I came. <laughs> you know, I have to get some like some, you know, the chase was fun. You know, not the fact that I couldn't just easily get it is what made it interesting. Um, I think there was maybe some people that that. You know, they saw it as a commodity and like, and anytime the stakes are up, um, you know, like, you know, or maybe, you know, hey, you're going down there, right? You know, well, here, you know, 10 friends each give you money and now you, you personally are upset because you didn't get it, but also you've upset your 10 friends who gave you money to mule some back for them. So I think the stakes just got higher. Um, and, you know, me not really understanding maybe where every individual motivation came from made me not realize, you know, the stakes. Um, but, and we all, you know, I, I always wanted it to be a ch more chill kind of thing. Like, Hey, we're putting this beer out. We're throwing a big party. I much preferred the first one where, you know, Oh, if you couldn't make the party, don't worry. The beer's still going to be for sale in a week. But then, you know, when that many people want something and, and, and the pool starts to become greater and it isn't going to be left over for those who don't want to deal with that crazy crowd day. Uh, yeah, we thought about doing it a million different ways. We thought about just generally releasing it, but then what you're doing is pissing off a lot of accounts that, well, I only got 10 cases of it. I sell this much of your beer. I should have gotten 20 cases. And you're pissing off people that don't maybe, you know... I accidentally got some and 50 people showed up at my store and were camped out this morning. You just, it becomes a whole different set of, of problems. So we thought about, okay, well, can we do it that way? No, that's going to be a, even more of a challenge. Uh, well, can we do it this way? You know, and we thought about just not doing it at all or just having little set release days so that no one would freak out. So, um, you know, what's going to, we're going to release it on Monday. We're going to release it on Wednesday. We're going to release it on Friday. Just, you know, three day, three day, you know, we thought about a hundred different things and there was no real good solutions. And we thought, well, we'll make more and we'll try to have a, you know, we'll try to have more people. Um, you know, and we, the, the, I forget what the year it was, but the year that, that it just went really bad and we didn't have enough for everyone that wanted it when I thought that we would. Um, that I really did think about, well, screw this. I mean, you know, there's no way to win and we're only going to make people upset. And, and it, some of the people that are upset, that number of people was vastly smaller than the people that were perfectly happy. Um, but it's in my nature to focus on what's wrong, not what's right, you know? And, and if I, if it's wrong enough, consistently enough, I'd be like, well, you know, we're not doing this well, we should stop doing this. So when I first started coming here, you know, as we talked about, it was a reasonably small little thing. You know, obviously the tap room was just right out, you know, right in you know the middle of all of the action in the one tiny side of the building. And your dad had the vision that this was going to turn into a whole thing. And every time, once a year, I come down and visit my folks and come back here and you have grown a little bit more and a little bit more. And this little bit was not so little. You're growing at hundreds and hundreds percent sometimes. And this building is only so big. At some point, did, when did you take a look at that and say, 
say this is going to be this might be something bigger than than what I was hoping to do. Um, you know, I always felt like we could still manage growth because I, you know, I knew enough about the industry to know like after you take a few big leaps, it's very unusual that you're still growing at fifty hundred percent. So I thought after we put in the the second system and we were at you know, and that was running and we were, we were actually brewing on two systems. So while one's only a 30 and the other one's a 15, you know, it, when they're both cranking, you effectively have a 45 barrel system. That's pretty big. Plus you can be flexible. You know, we were a brewery that tried to always brew a lot of different offerings. And so that worked out great. We could kind of do bulk brewing on the 30 and we could still pump out a significant amount of, of one off releases on that 15. Um, I actually, when that finally got commissioned, we had the the large canning, you know, packaging. We pretty much had taken over the entire complex. I thought we were going to be good for a while, and and finally, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that I'm not going to have to, you know, have my distributors wondering how do I get more beer. Like I, we were going to be able to keep up, and that brewery was probably actually physically up and running for about three or four months. And I started looking at the did not ships uh, beers that were ordered by large, you know, distributor suppliers. Um, that we made and didn't make and and I saw where the trends was going on I'm like we're still up x percent and I can't put I can't make any more beer here like oh you just can't get the trucks even if I could get a bigger system in can't get the trucks in uh and that's when I started going ah damn um like really good problem right but huge problem and I did start looking at building off-site uh maybe even building out of state and then backfilling so we could brew some here. But then like this, you know, the, the beer that was like in Northern Florida, we, we were technically in six states, but 98% of the beer was sold here. So we weren't really getting the beer out of state. So I think to go, well, if we get it out of state and we backfill in, you know, most of what was brewed up there will be, we can actually send beer, you know, into the rest of the Southeast, but we, but we could backfill into say Northern Florida from up there. And then everything here could be middle state South um, I started looking at that and then, you know, I just started looking at, you know, heck, I even paid off the debt for the first one yet and I'm doing the numbers and this is going to be 12 million on the cheap side. I mean, I've learned what the cheap side gets you. So really it needs to be 20, um, you know, and I still haven't paid off all of the debt of building this 30 barrel system. And I didn't like that. I didn't like how that made me feel. And I didn't like the, you know, just the thought of having to always be borrowing money if there's growth. Um, and that it, for me, too, it took me a little – the focus off of kind of this vast variety of beer. I You know, I still had thoughts where I kind of – I wanted to make sure that we could still do this small specialty innovative side. Um, and it just became like the high library. Um, not that I didn't want it to. I'm happy for the brewery to – be what the customers are telling it it should be but i just still wanted a brewery where i could also have some of the the little things i wanted thanks for listening to the beer edge podcast my partner john hall and i work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer we're passionate about beer and independent journalism if you're interested in supporting beer edge visit our website beeredge.com which is updated regularly with new content interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. 
Thanks for your support. Go to Arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrived consultant and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff satisfaction, and bottom line. Chances are, a switch to Arrive will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com. Because there's no I in Arrived.